0: Can a climate-smart diet still satisfy our deepest food cravings? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Eating a meat-free diet is one of the most powerful things one can do to cut their personal carbon footprint.
1: I still find it extremely pleasurable to look at meat and to smell meat, and I desire to eat meat when I see it. I just choose not to.
0: Author Jonathan Safran Foer, who teaches creative writing at New York University, wrote about meat-eating in his 2009 book, Eating Animals. In his most recent book, We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast, he asks how individuals can change their behavior to create new climate-sensitive norms.
2: The analogy in the restaurant world is that it is now inappropriate for chefs not to have a plan to reduce food waste.
0: Helene York is head of social and environmental responsibility at ISS Guggenheimer, a company that manages cafes on corporate campuses around the country. She previously supervised a food program for Google that served 300,000 meals a week to its employees. Helene describes Jonathan's book as stunning, even though it takes him until page 64 to confess that it is in fact about the impact of animal agriculture on the environment.
1: I had read a lot of books about climate change before I even contemplated writing my own. I was, mm-hmm. I guess what you might call a concerned citizen, you know, a concerned father. And over the last couple of years, I heard myself saying more and more often, wow, somebody really has to do something. Somebody has to do something. Can you believe this? Look at these images of the Amazon burning. Look at these superstorms, you know, these 500-year storms that are now annual events. Um, somebody has to do something. And I thought about my reactions to those images and to those books and the ways in which they were powerfully upsetting. They made me alarmed. They made me angry. They made me depressed. They made me motivated um, until I wasn't looking at them anymore, mm. at which point I just went back to my life. Mm. You know, With many of these books, I would read a paragraph or two paragraphs or 10 pages and say, Everyone on planet Earth has to read this. And then by page 20, I wasn't reading it anymore <laughs> because, not because they weren't wonderfully written. These are great books by smart people and, and wonderful writers, but something wasn't sticking to mm.
0: me. Mm-hmm.
1: And so I tried to give thought to what would stick. And, um, well, a balance of what would stick and then what has to stick. Our food choices have to stick. You know, we know uncontroversially that there are four choices we make as individuals that matter considerably more than any others, which are flying less, driving less, having fewer children and eating fewer animal products. And, um, it's a difficult thing to talk about because most obviously it's a pleasure, you know, for most people, I'm a vegetarian. I have been since I was a kid. I still find it Extremely pleasurable to look at meat and to smell meat and I desire to eat meat when I see it Mm. I just choose not to but not because I find it repulsive and not because it's easy I also have some of my happiest memories involve meat, you know the chicken my grandmother would make for me when I was a little kid my dad Grilling in our backyard or my mom bringing um, locks home on a special weekend morning So it's one thing to know that there is a cause and effect relationship between what you choose to eat and what will happen in the world, especially when it's scaled. Um, And it's another thing to have to bring that into a kind of engagement with our psychologies and our cravings. And there's a reason why Al Gore has never really talked about meat. He's starting to more now. There's a reason why the leading environmental groups haven't talked about meat, although they really are now and at full speed. Um, it's not because we're only now learning about it. It's because it's a tricky thing to engage the public in a conversation that is inconvenient, you know, as Gore put it and having to say no to certain foods that have been so important to us is extremely inconvenient. So I wanted to get as far in as I could and pick up as much momentum as I could before really engaging in the, in the most necessary material.
0: Helene York, you read a lot of food books. It's part of your job to do that. How is this one different?
2: Well, when you called me, Greg, and asked me if I would participate in this uh, panel, uh, I thought to myself, what's the difference between this book and Anna LaPay's book nine years ago now, Diet for a Hot Planet?, and um, and then I looked at my shelf and I saw all of these books, um, starting with 50 simple things you can do to save the earth. This is 30 years old, although it did not address food at all. Um, and um, for me, this book does depart from all of the books that I have had the opportunity to read. And mind you, I read them for facts. I read them to try to find metaphors. I read them to try to teach chefs why they should make different choices on their menus uh, to make lower carbon choices. Um, And this one is stunning. Let me just use that as a word. It's, It's really a call to almost a spiritual action, and I don't consider myself a religious person, but uh, there were times when I was moved to tears, and that's very hard for me, reading a book. I can do it with movies, however. (laughs) Um, I'm not usually one that gets there with books, but I think it was so personal for you, and it felt personal for me. I'm a parent. I'm not a grandparent. But I think if you were in either of those categories, you would find a connection. Um, and I thought the analogy to, um, the, well, the story of how individuals tried really hard to persuade and got audiences with um, influential people um, said, this is what's happening in 1943, and um, t- this is the Holocaust. I mean, I don't think it was the word at the time, but this is what's happening in the Warsaw ghettos. And people heard those stories, couldn't fundamentally believe it emotionally, and didn't do anything about it. And I can't think of anything else in the lifetime of myself, my parents, my grandparents that is as parallel. And I, I thought the parallel was um, haunting, um, but it 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 did what the other books haven't done. it's It's emotional. And I think I was finding, even though, you know I'm somebody who walks to public transportation, curses, sweating along the way, and, you know, and I'm a vegetarian until dinner, and then I'm a pescatarian sometimes, but I don't eat meat, and, you know, I've, I've committed my professional life to this. I found, reading this book, that there were other things I could potentially commit to, and so I began trying them on for size, and that, doesn't typically happen and I think that's there's a lot of power in this book
1: I'm so moved to hear that and you know I had the most amazing experience about two weeks ago I did a reading and there was a signing line afterwards and a young couple uh came up and they put their book in front of me and opened to what would normally be the um title page or was the title page would normally be empty and it was filled with their handwriting and I said what's this And they said, we're getting married in a couple of months. And we decided that we really need to have a plan because if we don't have a plan, we're just going to do what we've always done. And their plan was eat vegetarian unless served meat at a friend's house. um, Eat vegan two days a week, have no more than two children, and drive no more than a thousand miles a year. And instead of asking me to just sign it, they had written a line that said witness. And wanted me to sign that. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I was really moved by their plan. I was really moved by the particularness of their plan. Mm -hmm. You know, like, what else? So interesting. Eat vegetarian except when you're at a friend's house. Yeah, that makes sense to me. It's maybe not what I would do, but what a great idea. That's a really cool way to approach the problem. A thousand miles a year. Could I do that? A thousand miles a year? I'm not so sure. Eating vegan two days a week. You know, one could look at that and say, Hey, if it's wrong, it's wrong. Like, if the answer is that we gotta eat less, just go all the way. You know, you could measure the five days of hypocrisy, or you could measure the two days of accomplishment. And I think we've gotten so used to measuring the hypocrisies and the distances from a perfection that's not only unattainable, it's also unnecessary. You know, we do not, as a species, have to stop flying, stop eating animal products, stop having babies. We just have to do these things with a lot of moderation. We have to do them a lot less than we're doing them now. And when I saw their plan, it occurred to me, having written this book, which took me, I don't know, two years to write, and having thought about this issue, having opined at dinner parties, having made posters for marches, that I didn't have a plan. I could not say to anybody, I could not say to my kids, this is what I'm going to do. And instead, I have been doing what I imagine most of you do, which is you say, I'm going to try to fly less in the coming year. I'm going to try to eat less meat in the coming year. But that doesn't really translate into behavior, at least not in my experience. I think we're so used to thinking about the shame of not acting that we forget the joy of acting um, and how good it can feel and what a relief it can feel to close the distance between what you know you should do, not because someone else is telling you, but because you're telling you, because of your own inner compass, I know I should be participating in this way, and yet we witness ourselves not participating in those ways. And just to close the distance, even by increments, is, provides its own kind of joy.
2: I think in some ways you're really talking about a new norm and creating a new norm, where people really do make their own commitments and then you share it with other people and then they feel they have to share it with other people. Um, and and then it becomes what people do. And the analogy in the restaurant world, um, and it's taken a good 10 to 15 years to get to this place, is that it is now inappropriate for chefs not to have a plan to reduce food waste. Um, 50% reduction is what all of the major companies that have sort of thought about this issue in the last uh, couple of years have committed to. Food waste is you know, by many accounts responsible for about 8% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. If we're able to cut it by 50%, that's a reduction of 4%. That's extraordinary. There are very few things, and you know, you talk about you know your identity as you know your choices of food that's based on you know preferences and history and uh, many many different things, convenience, uh, certainly the cost, um, what the people you live with want to eat, and so forth. There are many different things uh, uh, that you might choose to eat, but reducing food costs and then focusing on, do I really need to eat this much food? Maybe I'll order less next time, is something that really everyone can do without changing your food choices. Now, I'm not suggesting that if you eat meat that you don't consider eating less or not eating it, because I do agree that that's one of the big ones up there. But reducing food waste is really, I would make, a top five, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I think Project Drawdown would would back me up on that one. Reducing food waste is, is a radical step that everyone can take every single day. If
0: you're listening to a Climate One Conversation with Jonathan Safran Foer, author of We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Starts at Breakfast and Helene York, Head of Social and Environmental Responsibility at ISS Guggenheimer. Coming up, we'll hear more about forging new norms for a climate-friendly diet.
1: I'm going to try, and I'll try, and I'll fail, and I'll try not as a religion, not as a rule of law, but because I want to participate, and I'm not going to be somebody who accepts the science rhetorically but doesn't accept the science behaviorally. That's
0: up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about eating a climate-friendly diet with author Jonathan Safran Foer and food expert Helene York. Carbon farming refers to agricultural practices that store carbon in the soil where it is needed and doesn't heat the sky. One way to do that is moving cows around in a structured way as they munch on grass all day. Caller Rose Ostrander, who wrote Climate Action Plans for the cities of San Francisco and Aspen before becoming a carbon farmer, tells us more
3: grasses actually need to be eaten it helps them stay healthy and it helps them grow in fact when they're bitten off they dispose more of their sugars down into their roots in the soil and that helps the soil carbon increase so grazing in a positive manner can really help store more carbon in the soil but the way we've been doing grazing Getting them down to the bare nubs. When those grasses get bit down to the nub and it's just that really short grass is all that's left, well, then they actually do the opposite. They have to pull up all their sugars, all that carbon from their roots, and try to help the plant grow. But managed grazing says, okay, well, we still have fences, but let's move these animals around in a fashion that they would move more in the wild or how they evolve to move. The science showing if managed grazing can actually sequester carbon in the soil is a little bit all over the map. There's some science that says it does, there's a lot of science that says it doesn't. However, there is no doubt that managed grazing is always a good tool when it comes to ecosystem restoration and a healthy ecosystem is something that you need in order to have large-scale carbon sequestration. So I think we really need to be shifting this conversation from is meat good, is meat bad or is this thing good or is this thing bad to how was it produced, how was it grown, was it grown in a way that was restorative and regenerative, was it grown in a way that was degenerative and extractive and bad for the people and animals and landscape.
0: I was Keller Rose Ostrander with the Marin Carbon Project, an effort to change the way cattle graze on grasslands, uh, trying to reframe uh, uh, Helene York away from good or bad to how the cows graze. And you've actually posted some things on your blog questioning this whole grass-fed is better uh, notion.
2: Uh, I agreed with everything in that, but there were a few pieces that were missing. And uh, the reason that the data is all over the map is because the weather conditions and the soil conditions in a place like Marin County versus Kansas City versus anywhere else on planet Earth uh, differ. And, um, you know, in in the Bay Area, we have many more warm months. Um, In other areas, uh, we don't. Uh, Even the so-called conventional beef are grass-fed for a 12 months before they move to a feedlot, which is also typically an outdoor pen. Um, If if every uh, system were in the same location, um, we could compare the two systems side by side. Um, I would also say that, and and a fact that we have to remember is that uh, the so-called conventional beef, uh, only reach a weight of typically about 1,300 pounds in only 16 months. And the uh, cattle on pasture, fully pasture systems, are typically not slaughtered until uh, 20, 24 months. And so they are belching methane gas. Um, for a lot longer period of time, and they're slaughtered at about 1,200 pounds. So there are a lot of variables here. I do think the outdoor systems, the fully grass-finished systems, have a role, certainly from an animal welfare perspective, from a land management perspective. But I just cannot live with the idea that beef should be an everyday food, even for people who eat it. It's just like bluefin tuna, Um, frankly, like giraffes and and tigers. I mean, we're talking about really, really big animals. And um, these are not creatures that even set aside the ethical issue of of eating meat. If you eat meat or fish, um, these have to become treats and sooner rather than than later
0: jonathan for you think that it's immoral to eat animals do you see this as more more black and white good and bad
1: i'm not so sure i would say that actually um i've now written two books that um are focused on eating animals and i don't know what i think about the philosophical question at the bottom of it um you know i've been to farms the Neiman, the original Neiman ranch in Bolinas. And I thought, you know, it's, it's not a bad setup they've got here. And if I were to imagine myself into a cow's position and, you know, maybe this is a kind of unnecessary <laughs> or stupid hypothetical, but you know, it's, it's not, if it's, if you think of it as a deal, like this is what the cow gets in exchange for what the cow has to give. But the reality is we live in a world of 7 billion people. And it's not an abstract question of whether it's right or wrong to eat animals. It's a question. It's a very practical question of the production methods that are available and that are necessary if this many people are going to eat this amount of meat and dairy, the amount of um, animal products that we consume now are the equivalent of every citizen in the world in the year 1700 eating 900 pounds of meat and drinking 1200 gallons of milk every day. So some of that is because of our changing diets. And obviously a lot of that is because of our expanding population. But whatever the explanations, it is where we are. This is the reality. And, you know, is are there ways of farming beef that are better than others? Obviously. Would it be wonderful if we could transition away from, you know, factory farms to the kinds of farms that existed 80 years ago? I would be the first person to support that. But that will also require eating dramatically less of these products than we do now.
0: And the other part there, Hilly and York, is that the kind of practices, this kind of boutique grass-fed uh, that happens in uh, elite coastal areas, uh, there's problems with scaling that because of the, of the land needed, because of the organic practices. Tell us that you know, organic is not quite uh, all that it's sometimes cracked up to be.
2: I think that there is a, a real dramatic difference between um, what you can do on a small scale and what you can do on a large scale, and that's true whether you're talking about fruits, vegetables, meat, um, or uh, you know, grain crops, cereal crops. Um, and you think about the history of how we got so few uh, cereal crops. Why do we have one kind of wheat, for instance, that is uh, predominant? Uh, Why do we have one kind of bean? Uh, You know, a pinto bean is just much more prevalent than all the other beans combined, and there's, we've lost flavor, and we really have lost a lot of flavor. But, you know, yields matter. Um, And if you practice farming in particular ways in an environment now where we have to really conserve the land Um, for many different kinds of uses and we have to house so many more people um, and we have to move them around um, yield is one of those factors we have to consider and um, you know just like beef and the production systems the same is true with fruits and vegetables Um, organic versus non-organic I mean I have given long lists of organic pesticides to chefs and in in a class that I do and I said do you want to serve these pesticides to your guests? And they're like, no, no. And then I say, okay, these are all approved on the National Organic Standards Board's list of pesticides. And they look at me like, what do you mean pesticides? I'm like, yes, pesticides in organic farming. They absolutely do exist. And some of them are because they are not as intense have to be used more frequently. Now, that typically doesn't happen on smaller farms. It happens on larger farms. So there's the issue with scaling. And 75% of the organic produce that is available in the United States these days um, is uh, from really large-scale farms. Um, in fact, uh, talk about the books, you know, the many books on my shelf, Organic Inc. Uh, it, was, it was early 2000s, and it's been an issue that has really accelerated rather than uh, gone back in the other direction
0: complicated. Uh, we're going to go to our uh, lightning round, ask some, some quick questions of our two guests. If you're just joining us, we're talking with J- Jonathan Safran Foer, a teacher of creative writing at New York University. His new book, "Are We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast, and Helene York, head of social and environmental responsibility at ISS Guggenheimer, yes. a company that manages restaurants on corporate campuses around the country. So Helene York, your favorite food that was cooked in your home growing up?
2: Oh, God, I hated the food growing up. (laughs) Hamburger helper was what we had. Um, I can't answer that. Sorry. Oh,
0: boy. (laughs) Jonathan Safran, four. Your least favorite food that was cooked in your home growing up.
1: That's actually quite simple. Um, A hard-boiled egg. To this, to this day, I can't be in a room with a hard boiled egg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Probably Helene, nobody's fault, by the way. I mean, you can, but. It
2: smells like sulfur. It's the worst yeah.
1: thing, the yeah. worst thing.
0: Helene York, one food you wish you could prepare better?
2: Vegetables. I love vegetables. I cook them all the time. They could always be better and more exciting.
0: First thing that comes to your mind, uh, Jonathan Saffron, for one food you thoroughly enjoy.
1: So this is going to be a trick answer to your question, which is the Afikoman at the end of uh, the Seder, the Passover Seder. You know, halfway through the Seder, my dad, who led our seder, would hide ha- half of the middle matzah, and then it was um, all the kids would go searching for it afterwards. And that, it's a, it's a wonderful kind of food memory because it's hard to imagine a less appetizing food than matzah, and yet it is probably my warmest food memory, which just points to how... Taste is a very complicated experience.
0: I actually like matzo ball soup, but... Um, that's, that's
1: different. <coughs> okay, that's all right.
0: <laughs> I'm not... <laughs> is that cheating? <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, Helene York, one book, other than the one we're talking about, one food book everyone should read.
2: There are so many fabulous cookbooks right now that focus on vegetables. And if you want to make a commitment to do better find one of these recipes and make it for breakfast.
0: Jonathan Safran, for a food writer you think is amazing.
1: Samin Nostrath, I think better than anybody else right now, conveys um, what I was trying to say a minute ago when talking about matzah, which is why we love food and the joy of food. And um, she is now moving away from animal products for, for breakfast and lunch. And I love the way she talks about it, which is this sucks. Like this is going to be really tricky for me, you know, for her to say, she's going to try to refrain from animal products for breakfast and lunch is like me saying, I'm going to try to refrain from adjectives and verbs in my writing until (laughs) the end of the day. I mean, she has more at stake and cares about it more. And I just find it truly inspiring.
0: We're going to go to association. I'm going to mention uh, a noun, and uh, you're going to be the first thing that pops into your mind, unfiltered, not thinking about what you should say. Uh, Helene York, what pops into your mind when I say Blue Apron, the meal delivery service?
2: Not the way to go.
0: Jonathan Saffron for meat grown in a laboratory.
1: Irrelevant.
2: <laughs> Helene York, farmed fish. Much better than it was 10 years ago.
1: Your answers are not one word, by the way. Oh, Oh. they could be one phrase. One One phrase. phrase. Okay, I want to take back my last (laughs) answer. (laughs) Presently irrelevant. Okay, presently (laughs) irrelevant. Uh, Also, for Helene York,
0: what pops into your mind? One first phrase when I say ugly tomatoes. Delicious. Jonathan Saffron for corn. Omnipresent. Helene York, sweet bread. Yuck. (laughs) Last one, Jonathan Saffron for. Flight shaming.
1: Um, useful.
0: Hmm. All right, let's give a round of applause, We're getting through the lightning <laughs> round. <clears throat> We're talking about meat and sustainability with uh, Helene York and Jonathan Saffron four. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, plant-based meat is quite uh, a trend these days. Beyond Meat went public earlier this year. Shares are up 500% since their IPO. uh, Beyond Meat is now available in Albertsons, Safeway, A&W, Carl's Jr., and Tim Hortons, really getting to the middle of America. Impossible Foods, a private company, has a similar uh, plant-based burger and other meat products uh, available in Applebee's, Cheesecake Factory, Burger King. Jonathan, what do you think about this? Trend for the first time, people, meat lovers, have something of a viable alternative.
1: Well, one in three Americans eats a meal a day at a fast food restaurant. If plant based meats replaced, I mean, it would be great if we could replace fast food, period, but that's not going to happen too quickly. And in the meantime, if we replaced fast food meat, that would be a really, really wonderful way to begin to reduce meat consumption. And I think it's a very easy way to because an impossible burger is not so different from a Burger King burger, except that it requires 99% less water, 93% less land and emits 90% fewer greenhouse gas emissions. Um, I think the argument about whether or not it's considerably healthier kind of misses the point. Um, The point is um, in this moment of climate crisis. This is a a really easy way to begin to make a difference. One thing that I've liked quite a bit about how they've been rolling out these products is um, they're not selling them as food for vegetarians. They're selling them as food for people who eat meat, who want to eat less. And that's been shown out um, in the in the buying habits. 90% of people who buy um, beyond meat in a supermarket also buy meat in the same period of time that they were conducting this. Uh, when KFC released their um, vegetarian, plant-based chicken, what a, what a weird thing to say, isn't it, plant-based chicken? <laughs> they had pictures in the New York Times of people lined up around the block and I thought, eh, it's just a bunch of vegetarians. It didn't really excite me that much, but they painted, painted KFC painted the restaurant green that day, which I thought was pretty cool. They're not just making a little substitute for vegetarians to get them off their backs but their statement was what impressed me the most which was they said we don't think of this as a food for vegetarians we think of it as a food for people who eat meat and are going to eat meat but want to eat less and if we could move away from the binary of vegetarian or meat eater and i mean you even had discomfort when you said pescatarian. some of these words trip us up yeah you know they make us stutter both literally and also emotionally and if instead we could move toward just this recognition we have to do a lot less of this thing, like if you were to ask me in 10 years, will half of Americans be vegetarian? I would say I think that's pretty unlikely. If you were to say in 10 years, will half of the meals eaten in Amer- America be vegetarian? I would say I, I feel that that will happen. It's the same outcome, you know, f- with regard to the environment, with regard to animal welfare. But it's a totally different, it's a perspectival shift away from claiming an identity to, claiming the choices that are in front of you.
0: Yeah. And that identity and that purity is often an, an obstacle for people. Think I can't be perfect. I won't start. So they just I'll just stay where I am. It's a real obstacle because that's the real barrier. Um, Helene York, uh, Yahoo. Uh, I read on Yahoo that Bank America Merrill Lynch uh, did a survey of people who are buying these plant based meats. Thirty five percent are opting for a plant based protein for health reasons. 30% for environmental reasons. When you're thinking about you serve thousands of people in corporate cafes around the country, is it health first and environment second? How do you, how do you balance those? It's deliciousness.
2: It, mm-hmm. Seriously. And it's how it's described. Because if it is described um, with toppings that are just really, really appealing to consumers and it's highest on the menu people will order it. If it's described as a healthy option on a menu, people will say, oh, this restaurant has healthy food. Great. I'll order the cheeseburger. (laughs) So it's really about, does this appeal to me in the moment when I'm making the decision for what I'm going to eat for lunch?
0: So you don't lead with virtue.
2: No. Although I think that the virtue um, has gotten supermarket sales going. Um, I think the curiosity has gotten the um, fast food sales going. And, and I think that has everything to do with the fact with social media, because you've got young people who think of food as an experience and they think of it as uh, entertainment, really and so and they want to share that enthusiasm and so they're willing to try new things and take pictures of it and share it with everybody and i think that trying new things has really accelerated the change because people want to try more things you're listening to a conversation
0: about climate smart food and agriculture this is climate one Coming up, will tackling climate require taking away your burgers?
1: It's not gonna happen. There's no, there's no, nobody's gonna make everybody become a vegetarian. What would be great is if we had structures that encouraged better choices.
0: That's up next, when Climate One continues. This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about food and sustainability with Jonathan Safran Foer, author of We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Starts at Breakfast. And Helene York, who buys food from farmers and ranchers for employee cafes at companies around the United States. As if food itself wasn't complex enough, things like compostable cups and plates often have more environmental downsides than we think.
2: It's going through an evolution, you know. We started with corn, which is actually a co-product of the feeding of um, confined animals. Um, I mean, that's sort of a sad thing. Uh, You know, if you don't know that, you think, oh, my God, you mean I'm economically supporting um, the confinement of animals by having compostable cups? Yeah, to a certain degree you are.
0: Because the the corn is fed to the cows and then some byproduct is made into a cup.
2: Yeah, when the cellulose is is, uh, extracted. Um, But, you know, now we're going into all kinds of other fibers. We're seeing leaves. Um, We are seeing uh, bagasse, which is a sugarcane co-product. We are beginning to see seaweed. That's my great hope, because seaweed can be grown in the oceans, um, which occupy a lot more of the planet Earth than land. And it sequesters carbon. Better than anything else on land. Um, and um, it's so malleable that I see um, the you know, the move away from plastics is good. The move toward compostable is good. But if you're throwing a compostable product into a bin and it ends up in the landfill is just generating methane gas, um, as opposed to plastic, which will just sit there. I mean, sure, we'd like to recycle it, but um, there's a great debate going on in the design community. Do we use a plastic and then recycle it to make products, or do we go with organic, small-o Uh, uh, products, bioplastics, if you will. The debate is not settled, but I think we're going to see some breakthroughs over the next five years that is just going to be better than the other options that we have now.
0: Jonathan, you have a chapter in your book, Dispute with Soul. And I thought that was one of the most interesting part there, because it gets to we've talked about how this is kind of a spiritual book. It's a lot about identity. And part of this says, um, have you noticed how often conversations about climate change end with the question of hopelessness? Maybe that's the self and the soul says, have you noticed how often conversations about climate change end? That's because we're hopeful and we're comfortable putting off the discussion. So tell us about that chapter and what that represents, this own conversation or conflict within yourself about your climate consciousness and responsibility.
1: Well, it's something that I had noticed, you know, listening to other people talk about climate change, um, that the conversations inevitably begin or end or both with the subject of hope. And um, I think that when people feel vulnerable, they tend to move toward extremes. You know, the extremes can be binaries. Like I have to do everything or I do nothing or extremes, even in terms of understanding climate change, you know, some very smart people are doomsday ish in a way that, um, Mm. isn't in keeping with the science. Um, there are these modes that we can kind of fall into if we're not vigilant. I find myself falling into them. I don't think I would ever say either of these two things aloud, but I, um, I know that they are psychological resting places for me, which are, we are doomed or we're going to be okay, you know? And the truth is we're not doomed and we're not going to be okay. (laughs) We're at the beginning or near the beginning of a process of loss. And we will determine the amount of loss. Some of the losses has already been set in motion and can't be undone. Most of it hasn't. So when I say or when I feel we are doomed or we're going to be okay, I'm first of all excusing myself from the much more complicated mix of emotions that a real engagement with climate change would inspire, like anger, sadness, guilt, resolve, hope, despondency, um, sometimes coexisting. And I'm also excusing myself from participation, you know, like people who say we are doomed and people who say we're going to be okay really aren't including themselves in the we that they're Mm -hmm. speaking about. Mm. Um, So I feel cautious about the conversation ending with hope, um, ending with emotion rather than action. It's very easy to confuse emotion with action.
0: And a lot of people say, we, we don't have time for talk, we need action, and they jump right into action thinking that any action is better than no action, and that may be misguided action or not thoughtful action. But people think some climate people are, are so uncomfortable with that emotion, they just get moving thinking that any action is, is constructive.
1: I think it's, you know, our cli- like climate change itself, the solution to climate change, both collectively and individually, will be a process. It's not an event. We're not going to save the planet or not save the planet. It's not, it's not a one-time event.
0: And that's a problem with that, this 11-year deadline, too. There's not some cliff 11 years out that people have been talking about that scientists have pushed back on that. It's more of a slope. It's not like there's this you know, turn in the road that's at a particular date. That's an inaccurate. No,
1: there's a range of outcomes that's right. responsive to a range of choices. And um, we are not going to choose all or nothing, and we are not going to end up with all or nothing. Um, but a sensitivity to the power of the choices and to um, you know how variable this process of loss is, and how empowered we are to not wholly determine it, but largely determine it, I think is um, it's more it's more psychologically difficult because you know the book ends with um, the book begins by describing the first the oldest known suicide note was written 4,000 years ago in ancient Egypt. And um, the book ends with it as well with this notion of each of us arguing with ourselves. And that's sort of my personal conclusion is that I'm not going to decide to be an environmentalist and be an environmentalist, whatever that even means. Um, It's not going to be an identity that I have, and it's not going to be a choice that I make. It's going to be an argument that I have with myself over and over and over. An argument to stay vigilant and not become lazy.
0: You say it's between resignations and resistance. That's kind of the choice.
1: Yeah, but there's a kind of resistance that is like a march that happens on a day. And there's a kind of resistance that's like a um, state of being, you know? And I think that's the kind of resistance that We need Listen, this is not to dismiss marches. That's, you know, my kids marched. I marched. It was one of the most heartening things that's happened in the last several years. But a march is an event. And the resistance that's required is going to be a process.
0: And as we record this, the the climate marches, Greta Thunberg as it came to the United States, Helene York, what did you think of the shame she put on our generation? She's been quite strong uh, shaming people in Congress, shaming... You know, our generation saying, "Shame on you for looking at, at to us for hope." We want action. What did you think of her, and and that the last what we've been through the last few days?
2: Um, I think she's fascinating, and I think um, she is really not speaking to us. She's speaking to people her own age, and saying, "Come with me, and let's do what." The people before us, our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, hasn't done. And I think that's fair and it's appropriate. I don't mind if, if you know, she blames us. Um, I, I think that this is going to be generally, uh, generationally waged. You know, and it's like, I don't expect a lot of people in their 60s, 70s, 80s to change their diets, although somebody has a heart attack and they become vegetarian, that happens all the time. But I think that each generational wave will have its own norm. I really want her to be a, and others, to galvanize action um, that, um, you know, young people, uh are not typically involved in political processes and i think it's great so can
1: can i ask you a question yeah what is the action you would like her to galvanize because the one thing i think she's absolutely amazing and has captured the kind of global imagination one thing that i find a little concerning is that the emotions are rising very high in a way that feels almost unsustainable but um, there haven't been really specific calls for action. right. And, and a march, I'm not it is a kind of action, but I mean behavioral action. Right. Right. if If you could whisper into her ear, knowing the size of the audience that she has, what would you ask her to ask students to do?
2: I think the next step is really a call to action for her generation five things. You mentioned four. I'm going to add food waste because mm-hmm. I think that's as critically important. Um, but I think that's going to come with the students who go back to their schools and their environmental committees or their environmental justice committees, and they're going to come up with their five things. And um, I, I think one of the things your book does really well is call it back to come up with your own four or five things, your plan, And I hope that uh, that's what I would ask her to do is ask those who are listening to her to make their personal plans to go with whatever group they associate with, whether it's a religious community or college or something else, uh, family even, make your own plan because we're all going to have different plans. As you point out, we all have to start marching with action.
0: We're gonna include your audience question. Welcome.
3: Hi, thanks for, thanks for coming. My name's Anya Gilbert. I had a hypothetical question for you both. I was struck at the Democratic National Debate, the third one that happened in Texas, when Cory Booker was asked as a vegan if he would force all Americans to be vegan, he quickly said no and then pivoted. If either of you had been Cory Booker's speechwriter, what should he have said?
1: <laughs> I, I would say uh, meat should cost what it actually costs. And then people can make their own choices, you know, armed with a a sufficient amount of information because information has been concealed. It's been impossible for people to make good choices. I know so much more about my refrigerator than the contents of my refrigerator. Um, And if a Burger King burger was not a dollar, but was the ten dollars, whatever it is, twenty five dollars. If the externalized costs that underwrite that industry were removed, then People would eat a lot less meat. There's a kind of rhetoric that people use. Um, Elizabeth Warren, who I happen to love, uh, sometimes uses this rhetoric of, you know, the corporations want you to be worrying about your food choices. They want you to be worrying about your light bulbs because it takes the attention away from them. That to me sounds like taking the prying the gun from my cold, dead hands, you know. Nobody's talking about that. It's not going to happen. There's no, there's no, nobody's going to make everybody become a vegetarian. would be great is if we had structures that encouraged better choices. And that's the kind of virtuous cycle where the micro and the macro meet up. Like as we change our habits and make our will clear through behavior and through how we spend our money, then it's going to be easier to legislate or there will be a pressure to legislate changes that make it easier to make those good decisions, which makes it easier to legislate, and that's how change will happen. But this idea that it's either going to be the individual or the system, as if they were two distinct things, doesn't make any sense.
0: Yeah, they're iterative and reinforcing. Jonathan, tell us about the demographics of vegetarians in this country. That the, de- the data is, uh, paints a different picture of vegetarians than what m- many people might think.
1: Well, there's an impression that to talk. I mean, I I would even not even let's not even talk about vegetarianism itself, but a movement away from eating less meat. Yeah, yeah. that it's elitist. It's an elitist consideration. It's something that people have the luxury of thinking about eating less meat. And it's the opposite is true. Um, Harvard Medical School did a study at the end of last year um, and found that it's $750 a year cheaper to eat as a healthy vegetarian than as a healthy meat eater and that it's $250 cheaper a year to live as a healthy vegetarian than an unhealthy meat eater. There are about two and a half times as many people who make less than $30,000 a year who identify as vegetarians than people who make more than $75,000 a year who identify as vegetarians, and people of color are disproportionately vegetarian. Um, So I hear this again and again and again, like, oh, this is something for privileged white people to... Um, do I only hear it from privileged white people actually and it's one of the like quickest escape routes from having to like confront your own choices there are without a doubt people who live in urban food deserts in America who don't have access to the same kinds of choices that people in this room do we shouldn't use them as an excuse not to make changes in our lives we should dig in and solve that problem those are two distinct problems um so it really is important, I think, to come back to these basic truths, that it is less expensive to eat less meat, it is healthier to eat less meat, and it's better for the environment to eat less meat, not to mention animal welfare. There there are plenty of arguments against the world going vegan, but that's not what we're talking about. Um, But the argument against really reducing the amount of animal products that we eat and a movement away from industrialized animal uh, agriculture there isn't a cogent argument made in response and the meat industry does not want to talk about this they just don't want to talk about it because they know that the values that would lead somebody to eat less meat are not liberal values they're not conservative values they're not religious values or they're not exclusively any of these things or secular values are old or young they're just fundamental human values. you know. They're, these are issues that we all agree on. We just haven't had sufficient information. We haven't been aware of when we're making the choices or the opportunity to make better choices.
0: You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about sustainable eating with Jonathan Safran Foer, author of We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast, and Helene York, head of social and environmental responsibility at ISS Guggenheimer, a company that manages cafes on corporate campuses around the country. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.